Welcome. It's great to have you with us tonight. You know, uh, I hope you're doing well on uh, studying in your classes. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that uh, you, you want to do well. You know, uh, contrary to common belief, you shouldn't drink water while you're studying. Did you know that? That's true. Yeah. Well, it's, it's because, you know, in chemistry, you know, you add water and that, that dilutes things. You, know, you lose your concentration. So, no, that's not true. You know, drink lots of water, even better hydrogen water. So, all right, well, it's time to get it over to Dr. John, who always concentrates. He's got the technology spotlight. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could make something out of thin air? What if you could make drinking water right out of the air? There's actually a lot of water in the air. The trick is getting it to condense out of the air without using a lot of energy. And there are roughly a billion people, they say, that don't quite have enough drinking water. So it could make a really big difference. Well, some researchers at the University of Singapore have been working on a way to do this with an aerogel. Here's a picture of an aerogel. This isn't the kind they used, but you can see how it's almost completely air. In fact, it's like 99.8% air. And aerogels have some really neat properties. For example, they're really good insulators. They don't let hot and cold through very well at all. But the researchers were able to make a device that could produce water nonstop, and they ran it for months. Check this out. Those little green things are their aerogels, and you can see the water coming off. This is sped up a little bit, but they estimate that with about a kilogram of this stuff, you could produce 17 liters of water a day. That's quite a bit. Now that's uh, if it's 90% humidity, which is pretty humid, but this will work even down to 60% humidity without any additional power. Let's take a look at how they did this. If you zoom in at their aerogel, it looks like a sponge up close. And you can see how there are these special polymers that will collect the water and then let them drain off. And so their material in some ways is hydrophilic, which means it absorbs water, and then hydrophobic, which means it repels the water. If you can imagine a sponge, it would absorb the water and then just hold on to it but they're absorbing the water and then releasing that water. And so that's why they can use it to produce water nonstop. Well, if you zoom in really close, like you can see in here, you can see how the water's just coming off. This is as they start heating the aerogel. And as they heat it just a little bit, then it will let off even more water. And that allows them to produce even more water, even when the humidity is lower, and they can do this with a little bit of sunlight. So they showed that they could produce even more if they have a little bit of energy input. And then they came up with another structure. You see these cones, and that shape makes it so as the aerogel is collecting the water, it can drain off more efficiently. And that even boosts the performance up like 20 or 30% more, so they could produce even more water. You can see that uh, this could have some really useful applications for producing drinking water, maybe even on an industrial scale if you had enough of it. But it might also be handy in a survival kit, you know, if you were stranded somewhere and you needed water, well, the air is always there and there's usually enough humidity in the air for you to have enough to drink if you could only get it out. So. That's some pretty neat applications. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could make things like drinking water right out of thin air? That's all the tech we have the time for. All right. Now it's time for a breakthrough moments in science with Tobias. So you've got your invention, it's ready to go, but question, do you have a dispenser? A dispenser. Is he talking in riddles? Yes. No. That'd be a terrible riddle. A dispenser for your invention. You know, sometimes you never know what it's going to take to push that invention 
into the spotlight to finally be recognized for everything that you've done. And tonight we're going to talk about such an invention, and we're going to jump all the way back to the early 1900s, and we're going to talk about Richard Drew. And um, Richard Drew was uh, just out of college, literally out of college, he dropped out, but <laughs> he got a job, okay, and he was about 22, and he got a job at the Minnesota Manufacturing and Mining Company, okay? And at this company, he got the trustee assignment of lab technician, which was basically lab assistant. And so one of the jobs that he had was he would take sandpaper, so the Minnesota Manufacturing and Mining Company, they had sandpaper, that was one of their big products. He took sandpaper to places like car mechanics shops, and he would give them samples of the sandpaper. Well, that's where our story starts because as he's doing this, he starts to learn just from hearing the mechanics and car people talking about a new fad. And the fad was two-tone paint job. You know, like this. If you look at this two-tone, oh wait, that's the wrong car. Um, we're talking 19, there we go. Okay, <laughs> two-tone paint job of the 1920s. And it was the thing, you know, you're gonna get two colors or maybe even more. But the challenge was how do you paint them with straight lines? And so what they would try to do at the time was they'd take things like newspaper and they'd try to glue a line covering one half of the car as they painted on the paint. The problem was they'd put the first coat on, then they'd put this newspaper and glue on that first coat covering the bottom half, for example, and then they put the other coat of paint on. The problem was it would sometimes leak through the newspaper or worse, when they'd try to take it off, the glue would stick and they'd try to pull it off. How, if they scrape it, it's gonna scratch the paint. And it was just gooey, and it was not good. It was a big problem. Two-tone apparently was very in, but this method was not. And so Richard heard them talking about this, and he's this 22-year-old. He's not even supposed to be involved in that, but he all of a sudden thinks, wow, what if, what if I created a sticky paper that we could use to do what they're trying to do with that newspaper and glue? And he starts thinking in his mind about what he has, or what they have, but what he has at the manufacturing company. So he goes back and he starts trying things with the paper they use for sandpaper. And of course they put a sticky adhesive on it, which they then put the sand on to make sanding paper, right? So he has an idea, I will use sandpaper without the sand. And I'll do it in these strips. And that will be the tape. And it, it will be great for painting. So he starts working on this, and I think, you know, it's, we, he probably thought it would be a quick thing, it's already pretty much made. Well, he would quickly find out that there was a lot more involved, a lot more science he had to learn, and a lot more testing that he had to do to get this to be an actual product that would work. Now, stickiness on things like tape and glue uses something called polymers, and polymers basically are large numbers of similar units bonded together, so it's chemistry. And it turns out the whole thing was chemistry and a balance of two, two well, not words, but two things, adhesive and cohesive. Adhesive and cohesive. And you can think about it as adhesive is like being sticky and sticking to other things, okay? Adhesive, if it adheres to something, it's sticking to it, okay? Cohesive is more about the substance itself and how well that substance stays together. So it's basically sticking to itself. So if you think about the example of stepping on gum with your shoe, as you lift it up, ew, yuck, um, the gum is adhering to your shoe, but as you pull away, the cohesiveness of the gum is very low, and so it stretches and eventually breaks. And it turns out that the balance between those two things, you can adjust to change the characteristics of your tape in this case, and that's what he had to learn. So he basically had to become much more knowledgeable in, in chemistry, and it took him about two years to finally get a product that was ready to actually try selling and letting people use. So it's the sandpaper backing, but it had a sticky cohesive, cohesive adhesive on the other side. Now, I do have to mention at this point, um, remember the company he worked for was Minnesota Manufacturing and Mining Company. Yeah, they just called it later 3M, so. <laughs> That's the company. Well, uh, another interesting note is this is scotch tape that we're talking about. Now, eventually the scotch tape, it would be changed to, he would replace the paper backing with a clear 
transparent backing, which is a story in and of itself. Um, it, but they, he called it Scotch tape. We don't really know officially how it got that name. Um, we do. There's a legend that he was out selling it to showing it to people at the car places for that. You remember the painting, the two tone, and one of the car mechanics gave it back to him and said, take this back to your scotch bosses and tell them it's not sticky enough. I don't think he knew he was talking to the inventor. And I don't think Richard told him either. He probably was just like, yeah, <laughs> I'm just the messenger. <laughs> but he went back, he made it more sticky, and he named it Scotch Tape, OK? So it is not Scottish, OK? They're, pro they're probably pretty annoyed, actually. <laughs> they're probably, why do you use our name on such a puny tape, OK? <laughs> if it was a Scottish tape, let me tell you something, laddie. You'd never get it off, okay? <laughs> never. But unfortunately, it never really took off. He tried changing it. So instead of pushing it for two-tone painting, they pushed it in the household or use it at work for odds and end jobs. This semi-sticky tape, you could pin something up, you could take it off, it wouldn't leave a residue on, so it's pretty handy. And when, when they would really get people to listen, they could start getting people to try using it, but it never took off. And they tried and tried, to get it to become huge, and it never did. Until, finally, somebody, actually someone in sales, said, what we need is a dispenser. We need to put the tape on a dispenser that holds it and that cuts it for you. And so they made a dispenser, and here he is pulling it off. And after they did that, well, you all know, it's just a game changer. Oh my goodness. Whoa, I could do that all day. <laughs> wow, because before, you know you were doing all day looking for the little line <laughs> to peel it off. And that's what it was before then. And I, oh, I have to use scotch tape again? Just a second, give me 10 minutes. But now it's like, scotch tape? I'm always looking for reasons to use that stuff. It's just a game changer. So if you get an invention, and you want that invention to be indispensable, you might need to get a dispenser. Thank you. Now, introducing Roger Billings. Personality. You know, uh, <laughs> tape. So you want to make a tape that doesn't stick too good so that you can mask a car. Uh -huh. And it sticks so good, you can't get it off. Mm -hmm. So then you have to reinvent the purpose. Sometimes <laughs> it's easier to reinvent the purpose than it is to, you know, <laughs> make it be what you wanted. And, and that's kind of like you. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> you see, my idea was if I would have you come on to my science life, uh -huh. it would just kind of, you know, freshen things up. Mm -hmm. I'll work on that. And now you've taken over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll everything I'll work on that. <laughs> is attracted to you the paper clips, the. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's not always good. <laughs> <laughs> Paper clips are good. Yeah. We just have to invent the what. Anyway, tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about a legend, about my mentor. And I'd, I'd like to put that a little bit in perspective. Okay. But of course, I want to make sure you have time. Did you want to say something? <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to talk about your mentor, too. You want to take over, right? You know, when she does admit that she's taken over, mm. it'll be a big moment. But no, I, I really was inspired by uh, Peje Monet to tell you uh, tonight some things about Mr. Lear, about Bill Lear, and to put it into context. And, and I think this is something that we've been waiting for for a while, and I'm glad that she twisted my arm. But at any rate, <clears throat> I, I was very fortunate to go to a very good university. I had wonderful professors. I had hard courses. I learned a lot. 
And I, I think that part of my training and education is very, very valuable. But then at the very end of my college experience, I was introduced to Bill Lear. And he was looking for a protege. I wasn't looking for a mentor. In fact, I was swearing, I don't think I even thought I needed a mentor. <laughs> in fact, I didn't know what protege meant. But he was at a point in his career where he wanted to kind of pass some of what he had learned on to others. And he was introduced to me, and somehow he decided I was the one. And I think he only mentored officially one person in his whole career. And so a week later, uh, my lovely one-week-old child and my beautiful wife were loaded into his Learjet, and we took off to spend almost a year with Mr. Lear. Uh, couldn't have imagined how significant that would be in my life. Now, the, the context that I'd like to set for this is that, uh, in a way, anyone that is in the Roger Billings Mentoring Program is being mentored by Bill Lear because a lot of the things which I'm doing are things that I gained or attained through my experience with him. And it was not until my mentoring year was up and I was talking to him later that he told me that he had been helped along the way by Thomas Edison. And so if you think about it, if you're in my mentoring program, you're kind of being mentored by Bill Lear and by Thomas Edison. And those are two of the really, really great guys that have shaped our world. So uh, I have a lot of responsibility on me now to be able to pass on this information and knowledge in a way that's useful to you. And, and I will tell you, I'd like to introduce you to one of the people that came through the Roger Billings Mentoring Program, <laughs> Dr. Peje Monet. And look how well she turned out. <laughs> that's a good program. You really did turn out pretty well, didn't you? Well, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well... <clears throat> I, I want to introduce you uh, today to Bill Lear. Um, there's a lot of things that you can say about Bill Lear, but uh, one of my first experiences with him, I mean, the first day I met him, uh, I took him for a ride in the hydrogen car, the hydrogen Model A, we toured the lab and things like that, and then he went away for a week, he came back and he picked us up, and when he picked us up, this Learjet landed, and rolled up, door opened, we got in, Learjet closed up, and off it went. I mean, it didn't even stop to you know refuel or anything. It just was like that fast. Taking off in a Learjet with Bill Lear is quite an experience. And it's kind of where I first really met him. And I want to I want to share it with you a little bit because it's quite exhilarating. Learjet is a uh, <clears throat> an engine with some little stubby wings. It's really a powerful jet. It's one of the fastest climbing jets. It's like a, it's like a very super hepped up fighter plane. It has two jet engines, it's a little plane. So we climbed in this thing and you know, I was at the time a pilot. I just finished my pilot's license so I was very interested. I had not been flying jets, been flying little Cessnas. So when we climbed in, Tanya and our daughter Kimberly got in the little seat there, and I sat on what they call the jump seat. The pilot seat's here, and right around the wall from the pilot seat where you come in, there's a little seat that you just pull down from the wall and sit on. It's got a seat belt, and then you can cock your head out around the wall and see the, the pilot and see out the front window. And I wanted to see everything, so I was cocked around that seat. Now, my seat was facing the wrong way. The pilot seat was facing forward, that makes sense. <laughs> but my seat, the jump seat, was facing the back. So I would build in, and it wasn't a big fancy, it was a pull-down seat, and, you know, you sit in it, you do up the seat belt, and then you cock your head around the corner, but my body is wanting to go the other way. And that turned out to be pretty significant as we got going. Because we taxied out to the end of the runway, we got ready to take off. We turned on the runway so we could look straight down the runway. I look out the window, I could see the runway ahead. And it happened to be the runway 
the main runway where I had learned to fly. So I knew that runway well. In fact, it was the runway that I did my first solo flight on. That was a special runway to me. So we're sitting there looking at that runway. The Learjet pulled into position and then he put on the brakes. In the left seat, which is the pilot in command seat, was Bill Lear. In the right seat was the co-pilot, Gunner, his co-pilot that always flew with him. But of course, Mr. Lear was the guy controlling the ship. And so then he started bringing up the power and, and you got two levers that you push forward and it revs up those jets. And they kind of bring them up a little slow and you can hear them spinning up, getting faster and faster. And at first, just a lot of noise. And then the whole airplane started to kind of shake a little bit. We were stopped because he had the brakes on, but it got so much power that it started kind of trying to jump off the line and get going. This, this plane wanted to fly, and he's still bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up. As a jet turbine turns faster and faster, it creates thrust. And the more uh, great the RPM, the greater the thrust. And as it gets weighed up there, they, these jets had a lot of thrust. You can just feel that, and I'm getting excited, and they're loud as loud. And, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, he let go of the brakes. He took his foot off the brakes, and the plane just lunged forward. And remember, I'm facing backwards. So when the plane lunges forward, I lunge backwards, <laughs> and, and we're off. And it just, it was an exhilarating feeling to accelerate that fast. And we're going down that runway faster and faster. And I'm thinking, this is so neat, so neat, so neat. And then he took off. And you'll see in a minute why I'm telling you this blow by blow. <laughs> he took off. And he climbed to an altitude of five feet off the ground. Just <laughs> he was up. And it was flat. And was, we were still on the runway because this thing still had a lot of runway ahead of us by the time we got it. But he got up and he leveled off at five feet. And then... He did what pilots call, he cleaned up the airplane. That meant that he retracted the wheels. The landing gear causes drag, and so he retracted them, and they folded up inside the airplane. And he pulled up the flaps, and we're still at five feet. And the plane is going faster and faster. When a plane doesn't have anything to slow it down, it really, really likes to fly. So soon we had a completely clean airplane. And then Mr. Lear pointed it almost straight up. And that plane just shot up like a, like a missile. And remember, I'm facing the wrong way. So not only could I feel the acceleration, but now gravity was trying to pull me down. And I'm trying to look around, okay, it was quite an experience. But it went almost straight up. It just went shooting up. I mean, you wouldn't take an airplane off like that unless you were showing off. <laughs> and he was. And I thought, this is unbelievable. And then he pulled the stick back a little bit, and we weren't going almost straight up. We were going straight up, <laughs> straight up in the sky. What an exhilarating experience. Have you ever heard me tell that story before? I have. Okay, well, tonight I want you to see it. I have a video clip of none other than Bill Lear taking off his Learjet. Now, I can't, I can't tell you that I was inside it this time, but it was like the time I did it. So can we run that clip? I want you to watch this and see if, if you can keep up with this commentary. Here we go. Okay, we're taxiing out to the runway. Did you see that big tank on the tip of the wing? And there are the two jets in the back. And you go rolling out the end of the runway, and now he's on the runway, and he's starting to pick up speed. You can see the, the fumes coming out of the back of the jets, and he's picking up speed. Pretty soon, he's going to get enough speed to climb to five feet. All right, here we go. You ready? Let's see him climb. And what happened to the landing gear? Did you see how it folded up? He's still at five feet. And then he decides to start going up. That's pretty steep for an airplane. But that is not what I call straight up, but it's pretty steep. And then he says, why not straight up? And he does. And wow. it's an exhilarating <laughs> feeling. Now, can you imagine, the only thing that would make that more exciting is if you're the one that made the airplane. And here was Bill Lear. 
He was almost exactly the same age I am when I'm mentoring you, uh -huh. when he was mentoring me. And uh, riding in that Learjet was an experience that uh, one could just never, never, never forget. Now, I want to show you a picture of Mr. Lear. This is a, an artist rendering with a jet in the picture. And there he is. Can you see the jet? Mm -hmm. And so please uh, memorize this face because those of you who are being mentored, this is the guy in the chain of mentorship that brought a lot of really important insight to me, which I would like to pass down to you. And there his baby, the airplane. Now he's, he's well known for many, many other things that he did. But I want to show you that airplane up close. In this next slide, you're going to see a Learjet mm that just happens to be sitting in the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian Institute in, in Washington, D.C. So there it is, one of the great airplanes that changed the world. The wings could not hold enough fuel to go as far as you wanted to go. So if you look on the tip of the wing, there's that little bullet-looking tank. That's full of jet fuel. There's one on both ends, and that's how he was able to get the range to make this an amazing airplane. The plane would cruise at 41,000 feet high. That's high enough to go way over most storms. And it had the ability to go about 540 miles an hour, 0.82 Mach. So 82% of the speed of sound. Uh, it, it could climb almost 7,000 feet a minute, as you saw. So it's an amazing, powerful airplane with a lot of capability. And going that high and that fast meant that uh, it was in competition directly with the airlines. That's how fast the big airlines fly. And it actually went higher than most airlines when it first came out. So it's a really, really exciting achievement of his career and one that he had to work very, very hard to achieve. Now, I'm going to uh, show you what this uh, jet was like in the very beginning. Um, and then I want to tell you uh, a tragic story about what happened with the very first Learjet. Let's roll this video of what it looked like in the very, very early days. It was the first production aircraft in the world to be financed and developed by a single individual. It broke 18 world records but it also yielded $52 million in sales the first year. So Bill Lear started this company. He built this little airplane. There's his Learjet company in Wichita, Kansas. And look at these jets just rolling off the line. First year, he had sales of $40 million. Of course, he had to work quite hard to get to that first year. But in 1963, while I was a, a student, Mr. Lear was working on this plane. He got his first prototype built, but before you can start selling them, you have to get the plane certified. And that means you have to go through a bunch of tests with the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. And they have to give the airplane the stamp of approval that it's a safe airplane to, to fly and to sell. So he was going through his certification process. Sad thing was, I mean, developing an airplane with your own money is pretty tough. Uh, Mr. Lear built up a company that built avionics and a lot of other products, and that company very quickly grew to 5,000 employees. And anybody that's ever hired anyone kind of know what that means. To, to build up a team like that takes a lot of success, a lot of money. Uh, but he built a team of 5,000 people, and then he decided he wanted to build this jet. So he went to his board of directors and said, let's build the Learjet. Let's build a jet. And his board said, no, it's impossible. We could not build a jet like that. All we'd do would be to go broke. So what did Bill do? He sold all of his stock in his Lear company and raised $14 million, which he then went and started Learjet all by himself. And things were going good, but it always takes longer than you think. It always costs more than you think. And he finally got his prototype, and he started flying it and testing it about the time he ran out of money. 
He has an interesting story he tells about these two very famous paintings he kept in his home. And these two famous paintings um, he loved. He bought them, they were very valuable, but when he started running out of money, he had to sell them. So he sold them, got some money, keep going a little bit longer, but he was running out, and he couldn't start selling airplanes until he got certified, and it was taking a lot of time. And so one day, they were testing this prototype, and you know they do all these different tests so that they can simulate conditions to find out if it's really safe. Well, this was a test to see what would happen if the airplane was trying to take off and one of the engines would die. What would happen? And hopefully, you know, everybody would be safe. So a pilot from the FAA, a federal government pilot, was flying the airplane with a co-pilot, and they were taking off, and they just started to lift off the runway, and he turned off one of the engines to see what would happen. Well, uh, it's hard for an airplane to take off. The, the time you need two engines the most is right at takeoff, but it was designed so it could take off with one because you never know when an engine might quit for any reason. Unfortunately, the pilot also turned on the spoilers. Now, spoilers may be something that uh, they don't know about. Should we tell them about spoilers? Yes. Spoilers are a thing that you do on a jet to make it fall down out of the sky. If you're coming into land at an airport and you need to get down fast, you turn on the spoilers, and it's kind of like air brakes, and it just kind of slows the airplane down so that you lose altitude fast and you can land at the airport. Well, you don't want to have spoilers when you're trying to take off because you can't get enough thrust to take off with the spoilers on. Mm -hmm. And here he was trying to take off with just one engine, half power. And with the spoilers on, the plane got about 20 feet off the ground, and then it slid back in the ground. The tanks broke off. And by the way, those tanks out on the tip of the wing, they were a good idea because they were way out on the tips of the wings. One of them broke off, caught on fire. There was a big fire. plane was destroyed. Both the pilots were okay. But Bill Lear's prototype was gone, and he was out of money. And it looked like it was probably going to be the end. But then he remembered that he had bought insurance on the airplane for a half million dollars. And a half million dollars is what it cost to build that plane. So the insurance gave him the replacement money, and he built another prototype. But he said he called the FAA and the senators, everybody he knew in Washington, and says, guess what? The FAA destroyed my airplane. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to fly, they're trying to stop me. And anyway, uh, about nine months later, he got his certification to start selling airplanes. And he sold, like I said, 400 of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, $40 million worth of these airplanes in the first year. There's a, a cute story that uh, is remembered about Bill Lear went to Hollywood. There was a, a guy that had a big aviation company just north of Hollywood. And this guy became a Learjet dealer. Problem is, no one had ever heard of a Learjet. No one knew what they were. And so Bill Lear had lunch with this guy in, in the Beverly Hilton. And at lunch he says, how much or does it cost to fly a Learjet? The guy says, well, let's see, there's fuel and so forth. And they, and they figured out it costs about $118 an hour. And Bill Lear pulled up a phone book, and he started flipping through, and he says, I'll bet there are a lot of people here in Beverly Hills that would be willing to come down and go for a flight on a Learjet. I'll tell you what, I'll pay you $118 to take anyone in this phone book on a flight. And so that's exactly what they did. They started inviting all these movie stars hmm. to come and fly wow. the Learjet. And that's how Learjet got in movies, and Frank Sinatra and a lot of people owned them. They became very popular and caught on as a, as a wonderful technology. Yep. So marketing, you gotta figure out how to market. How do you get people interested in what you're doing? That is one of the big challenges. Now, a regular 
in the laboratory, white coat only scientist doesn't have to worry so much about marketing. They just have to worry about assets and bases and, and the technology. But if you're going to be a entrepreneur, someone that takes technology and turns it into something the world uses, you also need to be able to tell the story. You gotta be able to get people excited about it. Uh, you need to be able to write about it. That's why you have to learn English. That's yeah. so you can communicate. And if you can't get people excited about your idea, then the thing's never really going to go anywhere. But now I'd like to jump ahead a little bit into something that um, I learned from Bill Lear that I'm very grateful for. And I like the way that he explains it because this is a subject that, um, well, it's a little bit interesting. And it'll be interesting to see what some of you think about it. Uh, where do good ideas come from? Um, Bill Lear said that a lot of inventors uh, think up really great ideas and they go develop them. He says that his strategy has always been to observe a problem, something that really needs to be solved for society, and then go after a solution. That's been kind of his method. But he says that he did what he did in science, he did so many things. He did it with inductive thinking. Now, to help you understand this, I wanna, I wanna go through one of his inventions, but remember that inductive thinking, as Bill Lear defines it, is when the idea comes from outside of you. Deductive thinking is where you figure it out yourself. You know, it comes from inside you, but he says inductive thinking is when an idea comes from outside. And this idea of ideas coming from outside is a central theme of his way of doing science. And I, I kind of like to have you hear how he says it because uh, this is something that he said really make a difference in his career the big breakthroughs that he made, and I kind of took this back, and it's something that's really made a difference in my career. So let's hear what Mr. Lear says about inductive thinking. One time I was working for a man who said, you know, Bill, when you sell something, it doesn't make any difference how many no's you get. You only get, you get one yes, and you've made the sale. And that's the same way when you develop something. It doesn't make any difference how many times you fail if you just finally make it make it work you see and as you saw today the evidence of not the first time it, it worked that was probably the 27th different unit that we made and yet it was so far better than anything that I ever envisioned that it couldn't have come from me it came from uh, some mysterious outside force that, that uh, guided me to to say, do it that way, and it worked. And uh, I would almost say that if I was to think, sit down and try to think it out, it couldn't be done. So I'm a great believer in the uh, fact that uh, there is such a thing as a subconscious mind, and the subconscious mind is connected with the infinite, and the infinite is, you can call it anything you want, you can call it God, you can call it, you know, a universal mind or anything you want to. But nevertheless, that's the thing that distinguishes us from monkeys and apes and so forth, is that we do have that power to, uh, to impinge itself upon our subconscious minds. And if we'll only use that subconscious, and it's a shame that in school, students are not taught to talk to their subconscious mind and give their subconscious mind a command or a request to do something. And once you do that, you don't have to continue to think about it. All you have to do is feed in all of the facts that you know to your subconscious mind and let them put it through their computer. And their computer can take all of these, these facts that are, many of them, inconsequential in themselves. But when you add them all up and you integrate them, they come out with an answer that does give you answers that are absolutely impossible to get on a what you might call a plain deduction basis. It has to be inductive thinking. And inductive thinking means it comes from the outside in. And this is, uh, my whole life has been based on that. From the outside in, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 
I heard this, and I tried it. And so quite often when you're trying to solve a problem, you think about it, you can't think how to do it. So you do what any sensible person would do. You give up. <laughs> but he says, no, 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 no. You program your subconscious mind. And lots of times, the art of programming your subconscious mind is the art of organizing your thoughts and really figuring out what the problems are, taking time to think about them a little bit. And so you explain this all to your subconscious mind. And who's your subconscious mind? Well, he said he doesn't know. A lot of people have different opinions, but it's, it's the you inside you. And someday, you know, maybe we can talk about that more. But the important thing is you pull all of this into your, into your mind, and then, you know, I go to bed. I got it, and I sleep, but I forget about it. And very often, as soon as the next morning, I wake up and I know the answer. And where did it come from? Well, it wasn't because I thought about it all night. <laughs> And he says it came from outside, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of different points of view about that. But what, what matters, I think, to us who are trying to change the world and get good ideas is it does come. And, and you know, I like results. Um, lots of things that you try to do in any technological project become insurmountable barriers. And this is a wonderful way to take them on. I've also found that this very same principle works when you're trying to solve relationship, business problems. If you've got a vendor or a customer that you're having a hard time getting along with and you don't know what to do, fit in all the data you've got and then sleep on it. And sometimes, and sleep on it and sleep on it and sleep on it and sleep on it. Sometimes it takes a lot of sleeps to get these <laughs> things worked out. But very often, uh, you wake up with a, a whole different approach of how you can make a bad situation be win, win, win. Uh, we have a saying around here that I, I really like, and it's kind of a takeoff from this, but this is, this is my little uh, extension of it. Uh, I like to say that when we run into really, really, really difficult problems, problems where you'd really get caught or, or, or things would really go wrong, what I like to do is set off the trap, trip the trap, and then eat the bait. Mm -hmm. Lots of times, the best uh, feast is the feast that should have pulled you down. When something's really wrong and it looks like it's gonna be destructive, if you can overcome it, then you can really enjoy benefits you would have never had it otherwise. Now, Bill Lear, with that first prototype, when, when he saw them trying to take that plane off with one engine and spoilers on, he must have felt like the world was ending. And he knew he was near his financial end of the road. And lo and behold, that crisis probably got him certified faster because they made sure they got enough people working on it in Washington, which was good. But it also uh, worked out to give him a chance to get another prototype. And he was able to go on to that great success. Can you imagine how discouraging it must have been the day that his one and only prototype went down? And there it was. I, I think that's a, a pretty big thing to think about. Now, we've talked about some of his inventions, and he has so many, but we talked about this thing called the 8-track stereo. 8-track stereo is where you have a little cartridge that you pop into a player, and it just starts playing. You don't have threaded or anything. And since the 8-track stereo uh, used to be real popular but isn't so popular now, I'm not sure everybody's familiar with them. So I'd like to show you a photograph of an 8-track stereo cartridge. So this would be a, a tape or a cartridge. You can see it here. that has music. You can see all of them in the background. People used to have whole collections of these. Whatever music you want, you just buy one of these cartridges with that particular music on. Then the next picture, we can see how you just pop this cartridge into the player. This is in the dash of a car, and it happens to be my close friend, Elvis, <laughs> who, by the way, I never met. But anyway, so if you have the Elvis cartridge, you just pop it in, and it starts playing. It's probably in the middle of a song or somewhere, but it plays and plays and plays, and the song never runs out because at the end of the cartridge, it just starts over. 
Remember me telling you that he had a very clever, ingenious invention where he would roll up the, the tape and then he would pull the tape out of the center of the loop, play it, and wrap it around the outside. I thought maybe you'd like to see how that works. Let's take a look at the disc. And there it is. Okay, so that's inside the cartridge. You see there's a little spool of tape. And on the right, you can see where it's coming out of the center. And then it's wrapping around the outside. So it's just one continuous roll of tape. And it just goes around and around and around and around. Unless it wears out, it just keeps playing. And his idea was in the uh, Learjet, we didn't want to bother the pilot with trying to rewind the tape or turn it over. So he just made it so the tape never ended. Think it's kind of ingenious. But then when people started using his invention, uh, some didn't want to pay him his royalty for being the inventor. And fortunately, he got a few patents on this. But it's really, really interesting to see what made his patent work. And I've told you about it. He said that for the cartridge to align properly, he had a little post, a little pin in the player. And then he had a spring that would push the cassette over against that post. And I want to show you one of the images out of his patent so you can actually see what it is. I don't know if we can zoom in on this or not, but if we can, now down a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. Uh, can we move? No, I guess we're stuck. There it is. On the right side, there is the little pin that actually snaps the player in place when it's there. And lo and behold, that pin was the invention that I think in one lawsuit won him $19 million. So it's really fascinating how just these little details being patented give you a monopoly. And, and it's a, one of the things that we teach our students here at the International Academy of Science is how to get patents and why they're important and how to license them. It's mm -hmm. an important part of the overall thing. Now, yes. did you want to say something? Give us just a minute because Peje Monet would like to say something. 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 I was figuring that you probably wanted some time to do your hermit thing. But, uh, I've been working on it, but I decided to do a girl one, and I'm still working on the girl one. Well, go ahead. Would, do, you, do you guys mind if she practices just a little bit with us, see how she's coming? Here we go. Don't have a girl one yet. Okay. She needs to submit this to her subconscious mind. I do. I yeah. really do. She has a challenge that is bigger than her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the things that are worth doing are bigger than us. So you need to submit this to your subconscious okay. and come up with it. And uh -huh. I just want you to know that we are not going to let you get off the hook without doing this. I'll do that. You think that by bringing your paper clips and things you can do it? No. We are definitely going to remember. Okay. But let's go back to Mr. Lear for a minute if we can. Now, uh, one of the things that happened when we went on our adventure, we didn't have a place to stay where Mr. Lear was based. And just for those of you that may not know his history, at this point in time, which is in the, uh, <clears throat> the 70s, early 70s, uh, 1970s, for those of you that aren't in, into the century. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he bought an Air Force base out in Nevada near Reno called Stead Air Force Base. And it became Lear's airport. So he had his own airport. And uh, just a short drive from the airport, there was a little river going through a hillside. And he had a house right above the river, and he called it the River House. And he invited us to come and stay with them at the liver house. Uh, at the river, not the liver, the <laughs> river house. Uh, Bill Lear's wife, a wonderful lady named Moya. And Moya kind of became the mentor to Mrs. Billings, to Tanya. And Tanya and, and like I say, our one-week-old child moved into their home, into their guest room, and we had a chance to live there at the River House. Uh, river House is just a plain little house out in the country. But uh, there was something that was really neat that just kind of tells you a little bit about Bill Lear. 
You know how when you sit down at a big dinner table and you have a lot of food and, and you really want some more potatoes, but you realize that if you would ask, well, then they'd have to pick it up and hand it to them and then to that person, that person. And finally, by the time you get it, it'd probably all gone. <laughs> and so Bill Lear took on that challenge. And at his table in the river house, he had a great big carousel. It was a part of the table that you could turn. Anybody could reach up there and turn it. And it put all the food on the carousel. So if you wanted some potatoes, you'd just turn the table around and around to come the potatoes. And you say, well, that's not a big deal. But it kind of was. It was neat. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem was when two people want something at the same time, you're trying to turn different <laughs> directions. But I'd like to take you to the river house and just kind of show you this wonderful place where we were invited to live. Uh, and, and I want you to watch for the, the dinner table. This is the river house, and there's the table. And can you see the, uh, the carousel there? And of course, Mr. Lear, and this is with his wife, Moya. And one of the things that Moya would always do, she was very, very interested in the business. She'd always ask him all the questions about what was happening, and he would go ahead and explain it to her. And this is the wonderful Moya Lear, a uh, wonderful, wonderful person, and a very important person also in our life. So now you've all wow. experienced the river house. There it is. That's really neat. What do you think? I love it. I like yeah. going down this it path. It, it's pretty neat. Well, mm -hmm. even in just something very simple like his home life, his, his dinner table, he was inventing. And he wouldn't just think about ideas. He'd think about them, maybe run them through his subconscious. And there is some real power there. You can read a lot about that. But then he'd build it. And that's what I like so much about him. A lot of people think about, you know, when I'm great. Mm -hmm. And instead, he was thinking about, man, I could build one of those. And he did. And it worked real well. You ever wonder where he would get the, uh, the bearing to hold up that carousel? And I believe he used a wheel bearing out of a truck. <laughs> and why not? You can kind of get him at the wrecking yard cost almost nothing. They can take a lot of weight. You can put big potatoes on it. <laughs> and there they would work. And that kind of shows us the kind of things we can do, doesn't it? Kind of a big carousel. Okay. I, I have a little clip here that shows you uh, Bill Lear kind of growing up. Uh, and the thing I want you to see from this is, is two things. First of all, uh, he was just one of us. He was one of us earth people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's significant because I found out that this great person that was doing so many things was, was just like me. He was just a person. And I found out that just normal people can do the things. The other thing I want you to know about Bill Lear, when you look at him as a very young fellow, is I want you to think about his origins. He was from Missouri. A great place to be from. In fact, he was born in Hannibal, Missouri. A lot of really, really great people come from Missouri. And I didn't know that until after I'd been through being mentored and I was looking him up. But he actually was born in Missouri. So let's take a look at, at the young Mr. Lear. That's not him. <laughs> That's a, looks pretty good, though. I guess we got him all fixed. It's the last clip. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty good shot. And you know, here. I wanted to save this part for next week. <laughs> and that is not, oh, that's him saying <laughs> that his project succeeded. And you know what? I think that uh, I didn't give him that clip yet. But you know, it's nice to put the Tina on the spot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember I didn't give you that, did I? Huh. She should have. She should have. She should have found it. Huh? Used her. <laughs> if she had used her subconscious, she would be able to talk like a frog. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> Let's look at that last clip one more time, though, because I want you to see Bill Lear in action. It's just really, really short, but his thing worked. And if you work so hard, you got to really, really want to do it. It's the last. There it is. Okay, it worked. And now here comes the hug. <laughs> okay. 
There you go. Be passionate about what you do. It's a big part of it. Be passionate about what you do. Passion about life, about the little things, about the big things, is what gives you the drive to actually come out of the shell that everybody's in and really do things. So uh, I think we've learned something tonight that can be really valuable, and that is that in each one of us, we may not completely understand it, but in each one of us is an ability to find solutions to problems that may, many of us don't even realize we have. And what you really need to do is you need to put it to work by explaining everything to your subconscious. And I think that's organizing your thoughts and understanding the problem. We know that our mind is being utilized only to the very, very smallest degree. And I, I really can't uh, explain in detail how this thing works, but I know that there's someone in there that helps us to solve problems. And what a great thing to do. Now, if you try this on an exam at school, okay, subconscious mind, I have a math test tomorrow. Be ready. I found out that doesn't work. <laughs> no, they want to let us learn all by ourselves, which is really good. Okay, did you want to say something again? I don't know if Tina got my message. Oh, do you have a message? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. You get it? Could, can you give us just a few minutes? We're having some Peugeot Monet technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. Okay, go Did ahead. Did you get it? Did you get it? You want to see a really young picture of Bill Lear? Yeah, I want to see a really young picture of Bill Lear. Oh, oh wait till you see my clip. In my clip, that's an old one. I go clear back. And I've okay, got him. I'll I save have. it for next time. But I want to show you a little bit more about him okay. and tell you some more details of the story. Yes, the Bill Laird desk is in my office. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's really fun. And I'm going to show you that too. But you'll have to save that for another time this is, because we're out of time. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. It is exciting. Was there anything that came in tonight that you wanted to share? Yes, I have a lot okay. of those. A lot okay. of them are thank you for the robots and for... A lot of robots lot, have left yeah. Missouri this week. <laughs> wow. They just mm -hmm. think that they're really blessed to be able to give them that discount. Well, and if you can learn how to use coding to make robots do things, maybe the things they're doing now are kind of simple, but the things that you can make them do is only limited by the boundaries of your imagination and your subconscious. Right. So before you talked about passion, yes. we had a message that came in from Carol. Okay, Carol. She says, I like when Billings tell stories because he always looks so passionate. <laughs> well, I so, am passionate yeah. about it. And you know, yeah. part of living life is how you live it. And I like to live life with gusto. Mm. The other night we had the most amazing sunset. Mm -hmm. And from here on the top floor of this building, looking out over the Kansas City Airport and seeing that beautiful sunset was awe-inspiring. And I want to get excited about things like that. Yeah. I want to get excited about, well, just, it didn't happen, but just thinking that someday Peje Monet is going to do a hermit impression. <laughs> I, I mean, am. I'm excited I'm about that. I'm going to do Kermit. I'm going to work on that. I, really I think am. what we're missing here is motivation. <laughs> so if, if she will do it, we will, we collectively will give her a prize. <laughs> and oh, the wow. prize will be a new dancing robot that's different than any other dancing robot in the world. Really? Yeah. Okay. And if you want to know more, then start practicing and it's going to be ms hermit right yeah yeah lady hermit the lady okay. hermit okay hermit. good hermit 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 okay hermit. oh this, this is just getting more and more exciting <laughs> isn't it i'm so passionate about it. okay well thank you very much we'll see you next time